Hi, I'm Andrew and welcome to Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering. I'm here today with Adrian Fubb and we are talking about building coalitions, uh, game theory and how geoengineering can influence international negotiations on climate change. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So do you want to start off by uh, giving us the title of your paper, please? Uh, the title of my paper is Availability of Risky Geoengineering Can Make an Ambitious Climate and Mitigation Agreement More Likely. Okay. So and this, this, came out, you, this came out a few months ago, didn't it? So it came out in, um, in summer during lockdown. Yeah. Okay. Um, so before we get into discussing the detail of this, uh, could you just give us a bit of an intro for people who don't know you? Where are you at? What stage of your career are you at? Um, and how did you come to work on this particular collaboration? Sure. So I'm currently a postdoc at ETH Zurich in environmental economics. And last year I was still a PhD student uh, at the Paris School of Economics. And I wrote this paper uh, in collaboration with Gernot Wagner when I was visiting him in New York University. Okay. And uh, could you give us a little bit more information about the other publications that you've done? How does this fit into a wider body of work for you? So it's my only paper of, on geoengineering. I've done some work uh, surveying what people think about climate change, what do they know about it, and what do they think about climate policies. Okay. And, and uh, just to give people an idea of how far along in your career you are, um, how many papers have you published to date? Uh, six, I think. Okay, fine. So, um, right, well, let's get started on this uh, specific paper. So do you want to give me uh, a basic understanding of the, of the premise, the research question that you're looking to answer? Yeah, give me the context of how you see this um, as a description of, of international negotiations on climate change. So our paper proposes a very simple description of climate negotiations with or without uh, the availability of geoengineering. So it can be used for pedagogical purposes so that people can understand what free riding means, free driving as well. And so we, we really wanted to, to keep it simple. So we have only two countries and uh, they differ by their preferences regarding climate outcomes. So you're imagining a bilateral international negotiation process as opposed to uh you know a kind of un type negotiation process with multiple countries is that correct yes actually our model could extend to a multilateral context but the okay. the mechanism we point out uh doesn't require like a multilateral context so so just to explain our mechanism two players were sufficient Okay, so before we get into the details of the modeling, then uh, could you explain to me the uh, concepts of free driver and free rider for those uh, listeners who are unfamiliar with them? And to clarify here that we're talking about solar geoengineering, uh, which is putting sulfur um, into the stratosphere or using marine cloud brightening as opposed to uh, removing carbon from the atmosphere. Yes, exactly. So let me start with uh, free riding which is at the core of the climate change problem. So let's say there are two states of uh, the climate. There is uh, high mitigation, so low temperature, 
and low mitigation and high temperature. So it is costly for each country to abate emissions, but uh, each country would prefer to have a low temperature and a high abatement climate because uh, the country wants to avoid damages from climate change. And so free riding is that uh, one country's interest is not to abate uh, since he preferred to rely on the other countries abating. Uh, it, it's okay. kind of the... And, the and does that still work in a, in a bilateral model? Because my understanding of the, the, the free rider problem, if you had 100 countries in the world, um, you know, as we do, we have rather more than that, and even the large countries are not uh, a, a dominant share of emissions. Um, so it's in the interest of each one of those countries to continue to pollute, but hope that everybody else will cut their emissions. Um, so that they have a low temperature climate. But my understanding is that in your bilateral model with only two countries, surely that would be a much less less of an effect and uh, and perhaps no effect at all. So why, why does that, why would that effect still exist in a bilateral model? Yeah, so actually you're right, because we, we don't have this effect in the bilateral model if both countries prefer high mitigation. Uh, okay, right. The, the, yeah. The so thing the, is, the free rider effect then is uh, is the desire among countries to allow others to cut emissions, um, but to not take the necessary abatement action themselves, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And free driver, if you could describe that for us. So the free driver uh, is a term coined by uh, Marty Weinstein and Gerhard Wagner uh, to describe geoengineering in the sense that geoengineering is really cheap. Uh, and uh, it drives the climate. So one player could decide to geoengineer the climate and uh, it would impose on the other players the geoengineered climate. Okay, so what you're saying is that the, uh, the temperature is forced to a lower level by the free driver effect and forced to a higher level by the free rider effect. Yes, uh, although okay. when you geoengineer the climate, uh, it's not only about temperature. I understand. Yeah, there are obviously knock-on effects, but just yeah. in, a, in 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 the simplest possible terms. Um, so the the free ride, the free driver effect has what problems? The problems are precisely this non-temperature effect. So it can, I mean, all the the bad consequences of geoengineering typically. So okay. So and yeah. So what you're saying, therefore, is that the problem with a free driver is that um, instead of uh, creating a world where there is mitigation at an appropriate level, it allows a country, whether or not they do mitigate, to impose a geoengineering solution on the planet, which may be suboptimal in terms of environmental and human outcomes compared to a situation where mitigation was conducted. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Like if okay. all players prefer uh, mitigation uh, or even climate change to geoengineered climate, but one player prefers geoengineering, then only this player will be satisfied and all the other will incur okay. the cost of geoengineering. I, I find this a really interesting concept because these, these models are uh, often called game, game theoretic models, are they not? Is that correct? Yes, yes, correct. Okay. Now, my, my understanding of this is that by modeling human behavior in, 
interactions between nations using this game theoretic approach. They, they distill um, the choices down to an artificial uh, set of factors and solutions. And my suspicion in this is that some of the essential features of those negotiations are lost by virtue of that distillation process. So it implies that people or nations can behave in a, what you might call a rogue way, without consideration of the effect on all of the other uh, matters of cooperation um, that may exist between uh, different nations. So, for example, they might cooperate on things like trade, security, um, airspace rights, all of these different things. And if there are, uh, if there are uh, simplifications that are made, then sometimes they, the essential elements of these different uh, elements of the negotiation are lost in that process is it fair to say that there is the that that risk from this kind of simplification um yeah i don't know uh it's just uh, i mean yeah it's a simplification so you cannot account uh, obviously for all that uh, happens in, in climate negotiations yeah the reason I'm, I'm stressing this is sometimes i think that these concepts of free rider and free driver particularly free driver are taken as if they're you know, a given, as if the sky is blue or gravity makes things fall down. Um, whereas I think that the, the solution in reality might be rather more complex. Um, uh, is it fair to say that, that they might give a, a result which is a, a seemingly accurately predictive, but may not be truly predictive when they are applied to the real world? Would that be a realistic um, concern about the application of this kind, kind of model? So the thing is, the model doesn't predict anything. It's just a way to understand uh, the climate negotiation game uh, and to show, like, to explain s some mechanisms. Okay. So turning to the, 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 the bilateral game that you've got, so explain to me how you've created this, um, uh, this game theoretic analysis that you've done. So... So it's a very simple model where you have like, let's say North and South, two countries, and they differ by their ranking of the climate outcomes. So there are two, three climate outcomes, uh, high abatement, low abatement, and geoengineering. And we can uh, look at all the different uh, combinations of preferences of the two players. Um, so the important assumption so is that uh, geoengineering is costless and uh, each yeah, it, it, it incurs a different cost on each country uh, as, as well as abatement and, and uh, yeah, different level. So, so you're assuming here that the, the baseline scenario is continued emissions, right? And so a high abatement scenario is where both countries would cut or, or each individual country would cut their emissions significantly. A low abatement scenario is where they make no such attempt. And a geoengineering scenario is where the temperature replicates the that of the high abatement scenario, but the um, but the abatement does not occur. Is that correct? Um, not not uh, not exactly. So we have three different climates. Uh, the geoengineered climate occurs as soon as one player plays geoengineering. Okay. And the high abatement climate occurs only when all players play high abatement. And okay. So 
uh, some players uh, play high abatement and some players play low abatement, then it's a low abatement payment. Okay. But in reality, surely, if you had two equal countries in a bilateral negotiation process and one country conducted abatement, the rate of warming would be cut approximately in half, depending on the balance between those two economies. Yeah, um, so it would be medium abatement, you could say. But it's reasonable. It would, yeah, it would result in a net medium abatement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's reasonable to, to think that... Um, each country would rank uh, medium abatement, the same, like uh, next to uh, low abatement in their rankings. Uh, that's yeah. our assumption, and it's simplifying, but uh, we, we think it's reasonable to, to explain. But, but in your model, what you're saying is that unless both countries adopt a high abatement model, you're assuming that the, the abatement does not occur. Is that correct? If both... Uh, if so both, both, if both countries have to adopt a high abatement um, and, uh, situation before that high abatement occurs is that that's how I understand you've described yeah, your model okay, exactly fine. and it stems from the fact that uh, to stabilize the temperature you need zero emission worldwide okay so okay right so that I mean that's a very simply a very simplified binary type model yes. um, and you're you're explaining I think that the the preference for um, uh, geoengineering amongst the parties is always lower than the um, high abatement model. Is that correct? So that they, they both, both countries would prefer more abatement rather than having geoengineering. Is that right? So not necessarily. We consider all cases, but the okay. cases where some country prefers geoengineering are not so interesting because then uh, the climate is automatically geoengineering. Ah, okay. So what you're saying there is that because it's so easy and cheap to start geoengineering, if anybody has a preference for geoengineering um, over and above a high abatement scenario, then that just becomes um, the default. What you're, what you're trying to do is to uh, demonstrate the influence of geoengineering in breaking that free rider deadlock. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so let's just recap as to where we've got so far. So you've got these two countries in this bilateral model, You've got a very simple binary consideration of climate change where um, people can either have a high abatement or a low abatement situation. And if, and if neither country abates uh, or if either country fails to abate fully, then um, the temperature is carries on warming and you have the damages from warming. And you're assuming that no country prefers geoengineering just because it's objectively better, because otherwise they could just impose that on the other party so you've got the situation where ordinarily the countries would be deadlocked in a kind of classic prisoner's dilemma type situation where cooperation makes sense but it never arises and then you're showing the influence of geoengineering on those negotiations is that correct yeah exactly so basically the, the situation where there is a, an interesting mechanism that occurs is the situation where uh let's say north prefers uh, low abatement, then high abatement, and, and then geoengineering. Because North wouldn't face like so bad consequences of, of climate change, not as South. Uh, so, so North prefers to, to abate uh, only mildly uh, to, to save the, the, the cost of abatement. Okay. Uh, but, but, but North, 
is really fearful about uh, the damages from geoengineering because it's so uncertain. Uh, so North want to avoid uh, geoengineering at any cost. And at the same time, South um, would face disastrous consequences of climate change uh, if there is not high abatement. So South prefer high abatement, then South uh, second uh, preferred option is geoengineering because although although it's in uncertain, uh, it, it's better for South to have an um, uncertain uh, good or bad uh, outcome rather than a certain bad, which would be okay. no abatement uh, option. So, so in your in your situation, uh, you are describing a setup where one country most fears geoengineering and the other country most fears unfettered climate change. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Okay, and then the option where the, the, the biggest fear is that um, low abatement, it, it, you know, the economic cost of low abatement, you're, is, is, if that is the most feared scenario, would your model then break down? Because that was the third possibility that you didn't discuss. So, uh, what situation, sorry? Like, uh, so there are three possibilities. So you have either have a geoengineered climate, yeah, um, yeah. a high abatement climate, or a low abatement climate. Yeah. Now, if one, one country most fears the geoengineering scenario and the other one most fears the high climate change scenario, then yeah. your, your work shows that geoengineering, the presence of geoengineering can break this traditional free rider deadlock, okay? Now, um, if one country fears most the, um, the high abatement scenario because it's most worried about the costs of the abatement process itself, being forced to spend the money yeah. um, on the abatement, then yeah. are you, do you consider that possibility or does that I mean, you, you, essentially you know, cause your model to yeah, break down? We cover, we cover all cases, but uh, I mean, you say that this country fears most uh, high abatement, but what about their favorite ranking and what about the other countries? Okay, so if, so, okay, so you, what you're basically saying is it's the, uh, it's the preferred option that most motivates behavior, not the least preferred option. No, no, no. Is that it, correct? Uh, it depends on the whole ranking of both countries, actually. So that's why I'm, I'm asking you for the, for the, the, the whole. Okay, ranking. so you have to have, so that in, in, so there are, there are multiple possible orders, aren't they? So you can have any one of the three um, at the, uh, as the most preferred option. You can have the, the, then you've got any two of the remaining as the second option, and then you've only got one left to put in the, the final slot. So that gives you six possible um, preference uh, rankings for each of the two countries. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's correct. Okay. And so how many of these different pairings did you consider? If you've got six on one side and six on the other, then that would imply that you've got 36 possible yeah. um, combinations. And did you consider all of them? And, and does the model make sense in all of them? Or does it break down? Because if you said if any country prefers geoengineering in any of the options, then you immediately get to a geoengineered climate and then there's no, there's no benefit from doing that. So all of those scenarios are immediately omitted from your analysis because they're you know it doesn't show anything interesting it just shows that if one person likes your engineering they just do it because it's free right yeah so the model uh, covers all cases so in the okay. case 
where one player prefers geoengineering is geoengineering. In the case where both players prefer high abatement, then it's high abatement. In the case of both player prefer low abatement, then it's low abatement. And in the end, when you look at each cases, the only cases that brings an interesting mechanism is the cases I started to describe. Okay, fine. So what I think you're describing here is that the presence of geoengineering acts as a kind of um, uh, threat or, you, you I mean, you can call it almost like a blackmail or whatever. So the idea being that the country, countries will say, you know, we, we fear high climate change so much that if you don't undertake abatement, then we will unleash geoengineering upon this world and you will suffer the consequences. Is that, broadly speaking, exactly, what you found? Yeah. Exactly, and it's okay. a terrible threat, actually. And so, okay. for this reason, uh, the, the, the country that prefers low abatement, we still do high abatement. And so, in this case, availability of risky geoengineering uh, helps reaching a high abatement agreement. So, when you say risky geoengineering, you, I, I, having read that paper previously, I hadn't picked up on that. But what you're describing there is that the, the fact that the geoengineering is risky is material to the um, consideration of that geoengineering by the parties. And if the geoengineering had no risks, then it wouldn't cause this effect. It's the fact that the geoengineering is both risky and uh, it's seen as being, it's a, it's, if it wasn't risky, it wouldn't be preferred. Um, it, it wouldn't be um, a non-preferred solution for one of the parties. So one party is prepared to take the risk, the other party isn't prepared to take the risk. And it's that fact that causes the, um, uh, the increased commitment to abatement. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yeah, correct. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and so, sorry, let me interrupt. Uh, yeah. Another thing which in where the, the uncertainty regarding uh, geoengineering uh, has an effect is that if there are some research regarding geoengineering that uh, um, removes the, the uncertainty so that, uh, yeah. so that geoengineering is, uh, is known to be, to be bad, but not disastrous. Uh, okay then we can end up in a situation with a geoengineered climate instead of having the first best, which would be high abatement. So this is also okay. the original argument against research on geoengineering. And that's, and that's um, because the costs of abatement might be higher than the costs, the known damage costs of the geoengineering. Is that correct? For one country, yeah. I mean, if it's the case for okay. all countries, then then it's uh, then it's the first best to engineering. But yeah. you can find situation where the first best in the welfare perspective worldwide is high abatement, but uh, some country will impose to engineering. So, did you actually look at creating some kind of mathematical consideration of this risk in order to set up that hierarchy, or did you just specify the hierarchy? Did you did you consider specifically the level of risk that geoengineering might impose? in doing uh, your analysis no we didn't look at the calibration of the model so it's just here to to show like what different mechanisms can occur and um and uh, so we don't know in which case uh, of the model we are okay so the it's the perception of the risk rather than the actual risk that causes the difference in behavior and you are simply assuming 
that the countries have a hierarchy of preference, which is based on their understanding of risk, but you're not forming a view on what that precise level of risk or perception of risk is. You're just observing that these countries have a different set of preferences. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And an interesting extension of the paper could be to ask to negotiators of each country uh, in the next uh, conference of parties to give their ranking between high abatement, low abatement, and geoengineering. engineering. Okay, in some kind of quantitative measure that, that shows how close they are, right? Yeah. Okay, so you, you, you consider this very simple situation of a, of a bilateral model and shown how this uh, kind of wild card of geoengineering can act as a threat to uh, bring uh, a recalcitrant abater to the table and make them do more abatement than they might otherwise do. That's an interesting result in and of itself, but obviously a great simplification of the world uh, in, in many ways. And, and, and the, the lack of a, clear a clearly quantified risk uh, function for geoengineering is uh, an important aspect of that, uh, but also an obvious factor is that the number of countries. So you, you said that your model was extensible, but I understand from what you said earlier that you have only considered this bilateral model initially. Is that correct? Yeah, but it's straightforward to extend it to N players. Yeah. Okay. Um, and can you speculate, therefore, as to what would be the effect were you to extend it? Uh, is there a limit? I mean, would this, would this effect allow any one country out of, say, for example, a thousand countries to force abatement on all other countries? Um, or are there many ways that it could, could settle? Are there, are there situations where uh, the, that sort of power relationship would break down and some countries would, would have such a strong preference for, um, for not abating that they would be willing to uh, suffer the consequences? And how many of those countries that were not willing to abate would uh, would it require before the system broke down and there was very little abatement in the model? Yeah, so actually within the model, uh, yes, any country, uh, uh, even the smallest country could, could force the other because geoengineering is so cheap. Like uh, it's estimated to be uh, $2 billion per year uh, to geoengineering. Okay. And if you compare that to, let's say, the, the profits of uh, Saudi Aramco, which is the, the biggest oil company, uh, it's like $100 billion yeah. per year. So uh, a single company could easily do uh, this uh, geoengineering and it would be in their own interest. Um, okay, I mean, that, that, that side of things is fairly clear and obvious. The, what, the, the question is, I had is... Yeah, what is not in the model, though, is that uh, countries have uh, other diplomatic influence and uh, they can like bribe a, a country that would want to do uh, geoengineering. They can uh, agree that uh, the country that doesn't want geoengineering can pay the countries that want geoengineering uh, so that it doesn't do it. Okay, I mean, that's a really interesting effect and I'm not sure that that was in the paper, was it? No, we, we haven't considered that actually. Okay, I mean, that's a, so what you're saying, and this is a new, a new idea for me, I hadn't considered this. So what you're saying, therefore, is let, let's, let's imagine this in a real world example. So you've got a, com a country which is very, very vulnerable to climate change, like Bangladesh is often given as a good example because it's so vulnerable to um, uh, sea level flooding, right? Very flat country. And you're saying that the Bangladeshis could, in theory, say to the rest of the world, well, you know, we're under grave threat here, stuff you, we're going to do a geoengineering. 
And the rest of the world could turn around and say, well, um, hang on, uh, we don't really like that idea. Have $100 billion to go and do stuff that will help you solve your problem, be that buying more food supplies or building better storm shelters or putting up a seawall or whatever. That, that, that's, what, uh, that's what you're describing, is, is it not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so in theory, we could have a situation where geoengineering is used as a stick to beat aid out of rich donors to, um, uh, for the rich donors to stop poor countries doing geoengineering, which might serve, which might not fit the interests of the richer countries. Yeah, totally, yeah. Okay, I mean, obviously, they've got the alternative of just bombing them, which is perhaps an alternative that they might find more appealing, but we're, I mean, we'll set that one aside for now. But it, that, that idea of that bribery is interesting, and it'd be great to see you bring forward a paper on precisely that effect, because I've, you know, I've been around this scene quite a long time, and I've never heard the idea that uh, there could be an economic solution to that free driver problem. Um, so that's really interesting. I just wanted to circle back to um, uh, an aspect of your model that you were describing earlier. So if you had, obviously you've got a very simple bilateral binary model where abatement is either low or nothing. Uh, fundamentally, your high, uh, sorry, your um, abatement is either um, high or nothing. And, um, but obviously if you had a model where you had 100 countries or 1,000 or whatever, then um, if one country continued to emit um, at a high level, then um, it wouldn't necessarily mean that we had high climate change if all of the others um, abated correctly. So if your model became more complicated and you had a, a much broader variety of preferences so that some countries might um, have an outright preference for geoengineering and some countries might um, uh, have a very strong preference for uh, no abatement, um, then how might that settle? I think you might want to turn first to the issue um, that, that might occur without a, a, an absolute preference for geoengineering. As you describe very clearly that in your model, anybody with an absolute preference for geoengineering could force it on everybody else. But how might the world look if some countries were extremely reluctant to abate? Um, would, what, what effect on the international negotiations process would occur from the existence of the risky geoengineering that you describe? Um, I don't want to make predictions, uh, <laughs> so that's that maybe the the limit of of my work. That uh, I I just offer some some mechanisms, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if one country, if like say Saudi Arabia is really reluctant to to abate and uh, and they want to do geoengineering, I I don't see how we could uh, avoid it. Well, what, I mean, obviously, if Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia wanted to do geoengineering, then they, they could, in your model, just get on with it. But yeah. the, the question I'm asking, let's imagine you had 99 countries who were willing to sign up to abatement and then one country that was yeah. like, well, we don't, you know, we don't mind um, uh, this geoengineering. Well, we don't like geoengineering, but if you're going to force it on us, then we'll carry on emitting anyway, because it's not you know, the threat of geoengineering is not enough to bring us to the table. We don't, we're not scared of it enough to want to cut our emissions. Yeah. Would it only take one um, country to break um, away from that fear before the whole house of cards comes crashing down? Or is a model like yours resilient to uh, a number of dissenters? And if so, what is that number? Does it have to be more than half the people who would want to um, so, so uh, continue emitting even with the threat of geoengineering or... Is it only one country that would be required to make the whole thing break? Yeah, so the thing is, like, our model covers all cases, and, and we show that, uh, yeah, depending on the ranking, you can have different climate outcomes. 
And in the situation that you describe, I think we're not in the situation that, uh, that I described earlier where, because, because of this asymmetry. Uh, so my point is that with 100 countries, you can still find situations where there is this deterrence effect uh, that uh, where the availability, the availability of geoengineering uh, makes uh, high abatement the outcome. But in the situation that you describe, it's not the case. Okay, so just to recap then, if countries have a weak preference for selfish continued emissions, um, then geoengineering um, might be enough to force them to compromise because they fear the geoengineering more than they love their emissions. But in a situation where the geoengineering is perceived as being less risky or the benefits of the continued emissions are very high for that country, then that would not be sufficient to make them cut their emissions um, even under the threat of geoengineering. Is that right? Yes. Okay, fine. Um, well, I think I've got a reasonable grasp of what you're describing there. The, what, where, where this is interesting is, I think, the, the extension. So you, you, you describe this, uh, how this model can um, be extended to a number of countries. But how might this be usefully integrated into a, a broader spectrum of considerations where we might have more matters at play? Obviously, you've looked at the idea of direct payments, direct fund transfers as a way of, uh, of, in, of, of, of influencing um, negotiations. But uh, is it likely that this model will continue to work broadly as described and as observed in a situation where there are other comparable game theoretic models going on at the same time on, for example, trade, security, migration, all of the other matters that, that countries trade on? Or is there just an inherent limit to this model that means that it does, it's just simply not informative once it's put into a more complex environment. Yeah, so if you want a realistic representation of the climate negotiations, then you would need a fully-fledged model, which is not binary, which includes side payments, uh, which includes uh, yeah, the possibility for trade deals, uh, which is calibrated uh, for the asymmetry of, of different players. Um, and this was not the goal of our paper, which is... Okay, but obviously it would be a more complex model, but what I'm trying to, trying to ask is that you've identified quite an interesting effect in a very, very simple model. You know, in fact, perhaps the simplest model that could possibly exist. Now, the, um, the, the question I have is that, is the effect that you've noted simply an artifact of that model, or is the effect that you've noted a real-world effect which would be robust outside of this very simple universe that you've created? So, I mean, yeah, the mechanism uh, can exist in the real world, uh, but I mean, you don't have to, to have like a hundred countries. You can reason like with big blocks of countries like the US, uh, Europe, China, and uh, the low-income countries. And you have like uh, four or five blocks of countries. And, and you, can, um, you can still have uh, the, the situation that, that I've described. but. Uh, yeah, it remains to be to be shown whether or not we are in this. Uh, what what the preferences of each block are, and and also this these preferences change. Like uh, in in a, in a few weeks, I hope that the preferences of the U.S. will change. For example. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the changing administration will set which order those preferences sit. Whether people prefer uh, high abatement or low abatement. Okay. Um, so when you talk about risk in this context, um, 
I, I appreciate this might you know be stretching the boundaries of the area that you work in, but could you just touch on the meaning of risk um, in 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 climate models and climate negotiations, particularly as regards how we consider future risks uh, and most especially those risks that might um, not impact for a few decades how do we usefully consider in economics and in negotiations the way that uh, an effect which we set in motion today but might affect us in 30 50 100 years time how how can we re realistically consider those risks in a meaningful and useful way so the big question uh, when you have risk uh, to take a decision is how prudent you should be because if you, you you disregard risk and and you say uh, okay so the most likely outcome is is a uh, so uh, and you reason um, always with, with that then um, with uh, the you will end up in an outcome like the most likely outcome is is a okay but uh, with a small probability you will end up with a disastrous outcome so like a Russian roulette type function right oh, sorry like a russian roulette type function you have a, a yeah. small chance of a very bad thing happening yeah yeah so, okay. so you want your your uh, decision to be robust to um to risky situations to 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 situations with uh, uh the bad outcomes uh with small probabilities and and the more prudent you are the 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 more you consider only this extreme worst case scenarios so if you're the the most prudent person on earth you will you would only consider the the worst case scenarios of each uh action you can have and you would choose the action that brings you the best worst case scenario uh, that's a um uh like a minimax or a maximin strategy isn't it a maximin when you're exactly. yeah. a maximin strategy right so to, to give a, a real world example, if someone's so fearful that they spend all their time sitting on the sofa and never go out because they might get run over by a car if they step outside the house, that kind of concept, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. So um, this, the, the question I've, I've got in mind is that we, we have to consider long-term risks that are started by short-term actions, okay? So if, I'm, um, if I might choose to go on a bike ride today, then the, the consequences of me going on that bike ride are relatively predictable in the short term. Now, over the longer term, it's much harder to predict what those consequences might be in that I might get a little bit fitter and it might mean that I am less likely to have a heart attack and like, more likely to live a long and healthy life. And as time goes on, the, the choices that we make today um, are less and less predictable in terms of their long-term effect. Now, if we're trying to deal with slow problems in society like climate change, how do economic models take account of the fact that we, um, th of this, it's a combination of a, a discounting effect in that we you know, prefer pleasure today versus pleasure tomorrow. And ice cream today always seems nicer than ice cream tomorrow because, you know, hey, you might not want an ice cream tomorrow and the world might end and the person that promises you an ice cream might not give it to you. So there's a preference for immediate consumption over um, delayed consumption, so-called time preference. But what I'm alluding to here is different, is a, 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 the, the risk and uncertainty of the future. And as, 
as we might take um, steps today to, to deal with problems that might not be fully appreciated by generations before that of our grandchildren, how do we usefully consider uh, in terms of economics uh, the those harms and the appropriate steps that might be taken to mitigate those harms. I think we could look back on what the Victorians might have done to mitigate harms for our generation and I think we'd probably um, find them quite comical really because they would have such a slender idea of what our society might look like and how it might function that anything that they could realistically have done to look after us uh, might be seen as being you know, nothing short of farcical. But how do, how do economists look at that problem? So there are several answers to your question. Uh, the first is that the concept, the concept you bring in is uh, uncertainty, which is different than risk because with risk, uh, you, you know the probability of each out outcome. So it's like a dice function. You either get a six or you don't get a six, right? Yeah, yeah. So with the risk, yeah, you have a dice and if you, if you, if you have like number one, uh, you die and uh, number two to six, you, you live. Uh, with uncertainty, you you don't know uh, like how many sides the dice has got. Yeah, yeah, you don't know how many sides it, exactly. And so, over time, over time, the, the the number of sides the dice has got becomes less and less certain because exactly. you know I, I'm standing in my kitchen, I'm I'm figuring yeah. that tomorrow my kitchen will still be here and it will look almost exactly the same. Cool. But in a hundred years time. I don't even know where the kitchens will exist, let alone my particular kitchen, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And in the same way that you have risk aversion, uh, you can have uncertainty aversion. So you would prefer uh, scenarios where you, you know the, the, the distributions of probabilities for sure uh, to scenarios where you don't know. And, uh, and that's a reason to be against geoengineering, actually. And that's a reason okay. against technological progress or uh, AI or things like that, you know? So you're saying that the, the fear of um, bad but uncertain consequences in the future deter people from doing things which are unusual or new because they might have unforeseen downside risk. Is that, uh, is that correct? Yeah. Um, and how do, you, how do economists square that off against unforeseen downside, uh, unforeseen upside risk? So uh, in the future, that an action that I take today might have great benefits that I don't appreciate. So you know, I can think back to lots of things in my life which have shaped my life and turned out to be rather lucky breaks, although at the time they didn't seem to be, they might have seemed to be either, either bad or insignificant, but with the benefit of hindsight, they turned out to be really, really good. How do you, how do you balance the fact that we have both the upside and downsides um, of deep future analysis? We, we take a pessimistic approach because... Uh... Because yeah, you don't want it's it's a sort of maximum somehow. So so, okay. so yeah. Um, I mean, usually we take the pessimistic approach. You could take the optimistic approach and and then engage in risky behavior, in uncertain behavior, uh, in the hope that it would bring uh, amazing results. Uh, like a teenager standing up on his motorcycle at 70 miles an hour because he thinks it might get him some girls, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And some people behave okay. like that and. Uh, and yeah, but but what seems reasonable is to, to take the pessimistic approach uh, to, to be prudent uh, in a way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and is there a name for that principle? That seems um, a, a, a bit uh, 
you know, to emphasize that that downside risk rather than to emphasize the upside risk. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not giving the guy a great deal of credibility here, but my understanding is that Bjorn Lomberg's um, arguments are as sort of broadly as follows, is that we know the cost of abatement today. Um, we know the economic growth that comes from not abating today. We don't know what future societies will be like. And we do know that we've had pretty rapid technological growth over the years and therefore it's best to leave tomorrow to solve tomorrow's problems and not worry too much about tomorrow's problems today because the march of progress means that what seems like a difficult challenge today will be an easy problem for people of tomorrow to solve. Now I, I don't know whether I'm accurately interpreting his views there but um, I'm interested in the economics of that line of thinking. Um, it, it, have I clearly articulated what you believe to be that um, kind of conservative anti-mitigation school of thought. Yeah, so uh, I think Bjorn Nornborg uh, badly applies uh, this precautionary principle because th this is related to the precautionary principle. So first, I, I would say that like the, the interest of, of Bjorn Lomborg's uh, work is that um, he, he ranks the, the different uh, things we should do ethically. And the first one is uh, like dewarming or or like something like uh, against malaria, or I don't remember. And 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 climate change come come pretty pretty down in the list. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything against climate change. Like the the the, the thing is like we're not doing enough uh, ethical things overall. So so we okay. should the whole list of 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 Bjorn uh, Lomborg uh, until the end basically. The, the second point is that what uh, is missing in in what uh, you you said and in Lomborg's uh, reasoning is uh, the, the uncertainty regarding future growth and future technological progress. Uh, actually, we, there is a small probability, many people consider it not that small actually, uh, that uh, technological progress will stall uh, for, for different reasons. It could be social reasons, uh, it could be uh, resource constraints, uh, it could be pollution constraints, etc. So, so if you uh, consider the fact that uh, the future world may not be richer than us, then you want to protect them uh, even more. Uh, because, okay. And there is so, another thing that, uh, that this analysis doesn't consider is the inequalities. Because even in 100 years, uh, it's, it's likely that uh, the average uh, Niger Nigerian Will be poorer than the current American. So is that really the case? I mean, the, if you look at say China, for example, it, it, it's not um, it's not a ridiculous argument to say that the, the the a modern middle income Chinese person would be richer than somebody in, for example, nineteen thirties America, right? Yeah, but uh, China that's ni that's ninety years difference, right? Yeah, but Nigeria is not China, so. So, well, no, I understand that, but what I'm saying is that Nigeria is a developing country, and it, it, it's it's it, is it not possible that um, that it would have rapid economic growth, you know, of the order of you know seven eight percent a year for a hundred years, and would it would it not then overtake um, yeah. uh, uh, today's Americans? It is possible, but you know the number of poor people have been growing in Africa in the last fifty years. 
and and uh, in many African countries, GDP has not grown in the last fifty years. Yeah, I understand, and, and particularly African countries have. Uh, yeah. There are some uh, some five or six countries in Africa that have seen no growth in GDP from from independence, and there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, other conversations that we could have about about why that's occurred. Um, just just refocusing on this issue of the long term un- unpredictability. So, if you could imagine a situation where some people are saying, um, well, climate change is going to be very bad, we're going to create a lot of uncertainty, you know, the, the methane might come out of the permafrost, we could have a five or six degrees of warming, this will upend the global economy, it'll all be a disaster. And then you've got some people on the other side, and, and, and they're saying, well, you know, we, at the moment, we don't know what's going to happen in 100 years' time, we know that economic growth has been historically good, it's leveraged a lot of people out of poverty, uh, massively improved people's quality of life and life expectancy. Um, how can economics help us tease apart the arguments of those two groups? How can we how can we create mathematical functions which helps us understand who's right? Now, obviously, who's right will come down to a large extent to your priors. Uh, you know whether you believe that things like you know the natural environment has its has its own uh, merit and value beyond that of human existence, which is obviously a very important point that will be put into some people's equations and not others. But let's imagine you have a hypothetical world in which each side values all things equally, but yet they have different visions of how the future might unfold. How can, how can economics help inform us as to whether rampant growth and consumption in early years is better than prudent pollution control in early years? How could we um, usefully... Pardon? You look at the worst case of each scenario. And, uh, but is that the only way? I mean, the worst case scenario of the, the doom mongers is that, you know, you, you're looking at uh, a complete breakdown of the uh, planet's ability to support a modern industrial civilization. And, yeah, and, and you're looking at potentially billions of deaths. Pardon? And this is why we want to avoid climate change. No, I get it. I understand that. I'm, you know, you're, you're not, I'm, not, I'm not speaking here as somebody who isn't concerned about climate change. Far from it. I've spent my life working on it. But this is but why we want to growth as well. Because there is a worst case scenario in which growth uh, brings us uh, too much pollution, too much uh, instability. Of course, yeah. But, but, you, but you say that, you're, you, but, that, that you choose between the two based on the worst case scenario. And in, in which case that, 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 that approach generally in life can lead to uh, an approach of hyperprudence. Okay. Yeah. So how, are there other ways that we um, might usefully tease apart choices between different levels of risk? So we all do things that are more risky than are necessary. We go skiing, we drive cars, sometimes when drunk, we undertake dangerous sports like rugby. And we could all do, we could all lead less risky lives if we wished to. Now, the the fact that we choose not to do that means that human decision making is not always biased to removing the most risky possibility. The question I have um, is, are there economic risk models that help us choose between these two preferences of risk so just to tie this back into the original discussion which is very important is that the the risk you you described this solar geoengineering as being risky solar geoengineering if there are risks in solar geoengineering then is is the worst case scenario really the only way of selecting between these two models no i mean this is a political and ethical question so what what can can bring about is just uh, the description of the different scenarios and then it's up to us to choose in which scenario we want to go but there isn't uh, an economic 
way you're saying of of solving a risk function in in any kind of objective way it's just i mean uh, whether people are more concerned about the, the worst case scenario or whatever right yeah the only thing the economists can say is uh if you're a risk lover you will choose a if you're a risk averse you will choose b but then okay. it's you to choose or with between a or b right okay fine and it's so, not only about risk it's also about inequality aversion and um okay and 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 just to about something you said um that uh when country uh, like growth brings uh, well, welfare basically uh i disagree there are uh, overwhelming evidence that uh countries like rich countries like the us or europe um people are not happier now than they were uh, 50 or 60 years ago and this yeah and I, i think the inequality point is really interesting because from what i understand uh, a lot of the um outputs that people value in societies are actually much more geared to inequality within those societies than they are with the absolute wealth within those societies having a small number of very rich people in society doesn't mean the society as a whole is better off um yeah. and in fact possibly could lead to a situation where it's worse off because yeah. there are, you know a lo there are lots of people who are poor and having a few rich people doesn't really make a difference to average happiness even if those rich people are very much happier than normal yeah but even if the median income uh like uh, doubles it doesn't mean that the median person will be happier uh because okay. I mean, this would be the case if people have uh, like a non-decent life, right? Like a very, yeah. very poor people that cannot afford food or healthcare. Then, yes, sure, growth brings them uh, well-being. But uh, when you think about Europe in the '60s, uh, people had a decent life, and and this is why uh, European people now are not happier than they were in the '60s because happiness is not brought uh, bad by material consumption. It's brought okay. by uh, status. It's brought by your connections to others. Uh, yeah, etc. And, and so okay. the argument against uh, uh, and like limitless growth in, in rich countries. Uh, if you combine the fact that uh, that growth doesn't bring happiness in rich countries to the fact that uh, it brings pollution and uh, and risks for the future then uh, there is no reason at all to have growth, actually. Okay. Well, that, that, it's interesting to look at, you know, the, the, the limits to the benefits that growth brings, uh, certainly. Yeah, I wanted to circle back to your paper and look in um, uh, how you think it might be used in future. What's the, what's the output that you're expecting from uh, consideration of your paper? Uh, the how do you think it will be applied in the longer term? My paper? Yes, maybe in the classroom to to explain to students uh, in a pedagogical way. Uh, yes, yeah, but, but you don't think it will be used in international negotiations? No, no, I don't think so because yeah, as you pointed out, it's not a realistic model. It's just like a description of uh, of some mechanism. Uh, yeah. Okay, fine. It can just be cited as like uh, like this paper who showed this mechanism basically. Okay, so how um, how do you think that um, this work could be extended to to make it more applicable and useful? Um, yeah, I think uh, with the, the thing I said earlier, um, you can have like a fully fledged model of climate negotiations, and and some other papers uh, do that uh, actually. Um, okay, and but do they haven't considered geoengineering in this regard, right? Um, That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I know one or two papers that that do it. Uh, it's probably not the 
like the the end of uh, of the I mean yeah there are still uh, work to do on that basically okay well it'd be an interesting program of work um, to to see that move forward and is this something that you plan on working on in the future or not no actually I'm uh, I'm working with the OECD uh, on a survey uh, in different countries to to know what people think about climate change and climate policies and I have a okay. project on ambiguity aversion and yeah. I don't plan to work so, on joint uh, engineering in the, in the next uh, years. Okay. Well, I think we would like to hear more from your co-author on that. Uh, Gernot has always been uh, quite an active commentator in the field, um, mm -hmm. and he's uh, certainly helped draw my attention. Although I study economics myself, I, I do more um, on uh, sort of short-term market mechanisms than I do anything on these longer-term macroeconomic damage functions and negotiations. It's not my... Uh, not my thing so it's uh, very interesting to sort of see his work which is so different to mine and often quite frankly struggle to get my head around which is why it's nice to have you come on the show and explain that in depth some of the stuff that you've been working on with him and um, I hope that uh, he and possibly you will be um, popping up on our radar in the future so um, just to uh, finish off then um, with our customary rejection of your paper as reviewer too it's what we do um, and thanks very much for coming on the show, and I hope our paths will cross again. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you.